This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is The Right to Have Rights by Stephanie DeGoyer, Alistair Hunt, Lita Maxwell, and Samuel Moyne, with an afterword from Astra Taylor. Sixty years ago, the political theorist Hannah Arendt, an exiled Jew deprived of her German citizenship, observed that before people can enjoy any of the inalienable rights of man, before there can be any specific rights to education, work, voting, and so on, there must first be such a thing as the right to have rights. The concept received little attention at the time, but in our age of mass deportations, Muslim bans, refugee crises, and extra-state war, the phrase has become the center of a crucial and lively debate. Here, five leading thinkers from varied disciplines, including history, law, politics, and literary studies, discuss the critical basis of rights and the meaning of radical democratic politics today. The Right to Have Rights by Stephanie DeGoyer, Alistair Hunt, Lita Maxwell, and Samuel Moyne, with an afterword from Astor Taylor. Out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. We don't yet know the full extent of what Robert Mueller's investigation will turn up on President Trump and his many hangers-on in possession of various degrees of finality and ineptitude. What we do know is that the politics of the Russia probe are an utter disaster, leading Republicans to hypocritically denounce purported national security state abuses on the part of a national security state whose rampant abuses they've always cheered on with glee. Democrats, when they're not busy stupefied in awe of Russian troll armies, now toast the nasty underbelly of the American carceral state and empire as saviors of the republic. Meanwhile, members of both parties have voted time and again against even modest reforms to the dragnet surveillance state. Who better to discuss this with than Glenn Greenwald, who, amongst many other things, is the co-founding editor of The Intercept. He's my guest today. Before we get rolling, I need your support at patreon.com slash the dig to keep this podcast running. And so that I can invest in things like food, rent, and working less on weekends. If you haven't done so yet, please pause now and join the more than 800 others who are donating at patreon.com slash the dig. Thank you, and here is Glenn Greenwald. Glenn Greenwald, welcome back to The Dig. It's great to be back. Thank you for having me. I guess we have to start with the Russian troll army. What did Mueller charge and what do you make of it all? So the indictment, the most recent one, charges 13 Russian nationals, individuals and entities with essentially doing two things. One, creating various fake identities for social media usage with the intention of sowing discord in the American political landscape by disseminating inflammatory messages, sometimes supporting Bernie Sanders, sometimes supportive of Donald Trump, sometimes encouraging minorities not to vote, um, maligning Hillary Clinton, um, and those sorts of things. So um, fake Facebook identities, fake Twitter identities designed to make people who are actually Russian appear to be American, communicating with fellow Americans about the election with the intent, according to Mueller, of sowing discord, not electing Donald Trump. Um, secondly, they, according to Mueller, organize various events, political events, that were designed to make it look like it was Americans who were orchestrating these events. Some of these events were anti-Hillary. Some of them were um, pro-Trump, but then some of them were anti-Trump, including two that were held once Trump was elected. Um, 
And I think, you know, the big question is, what was the magnitude of this operation? Um, Adrian Chen, who probably did more work and certainly the earliest work on so-called Russian troll factories, has been very adamant about the extremely limited impact that this kind of activity has because it's primitive, because it pales in comparison to the amount of money spent on messaging by both campaigns, let alone U.S. corporations and lobbyists and the like. Um, so there, do, does, there does seem to be, um, you know, what I would describe as a fairly small quantity of activity of, of fake uh, disinformation campaigns. Sometimes the information that was actually accurate uh, in critiquing certain candidates or supporting others. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's, it's if you believe the indictment, and of course it hasn't yet been proven, they're just allegations from a prosecutor, but if they turn out to be true, it will establish that at least some Russian citizens whose connection to the Russian government is at best murky, and in some cases appears to be non-existent, um, engaged in some relatively limited degree of social media uh, campaign that was deceitful in its nature because it hid the identity of who was doing it. Um, and according to Mueller, was designed to create some discontent and discord. I think that question of efficacy that you pointed to um, and that friend of the show, Adrian Chen, uh, has been talking about one of the few people out there talking about repeatedly, I think is so key because the reading the New York Times breathlessly report on an Instagram account belonging to a made up group called Woke Blacks posting things about. Trump misleading the people and forcing blacks to vote for Hillary as though this is this critical intervention that may have swayed the election. It seems to me that Mueller's doing his his job by investigating anyone who may have interfered with the election. The problem is more of of what the what the mainstream media is making of that investigation. Absolutely. I mean, I've seen instances where certain Twitter accounts were identified and served as the basis for major media outlet stories about Russian interference in the election. When you go and look at them, they have, you know, 13 Twitter followers um, and like an average number of retweets of like between three and five. You know, sometimes it's on that level of absurdity. Other times, you know, it's, it's a little more substantial. Um, but the scope of it, when you put it into the broad context of the fact that Hillary Clinton spent a billion dollars on her campaign, um, Donald Trump spent, I think, I don't know, roughly half that, maybe two thirds of that, um, is an infinitesimal, barely detectable fraction um, of the messaging that Americans were inundated with officially by the campaigns. And again, then you factor in, you know, dark money and super PACs and just the ongoing non-election propaganda. Um, I find it extremely difficult to believe um, that any rational person in good faith would say that it was significant in terms of its impact. Um, and, you know, I think that there is this real question um, about how the media is treating these kinds of claims. I think we are at the point where there's extreme amounts of groupthink and hysteria that the American media has fallen prey to so many times in the past particularly when it comes to um, exaggerating the threat posed by whatever foreign villain is the one most in, in chic. Obviously, the New York Times led the way in doing that with Saddam Hussein, although lots of other media outlets participated, um, and so many other examples as well. Um, and so I think that there's a big part of that going on. And I do think it's notable that friend of the show, Adrian Chen, um, is one of the people most aggressively trying to tamp down the hyperbole surrounding this reporting since he was the one who did the report and if anything has the greatest incentive to be out there pounding the table saying this was the most significant story ever because he's the one who first broke it and so admirably he's doing the opposite he doesn't want his reporting misused um he's actually been very emphatic about how relatively crude and primitive and limited this operation actually at least from what we know so far, has been. Obviously, there are political determinants to why the media is covering the troll army in the way 
that it is. But I think it also has to do perhaps with just reporting techniques, not catching up to new technology. And so this 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 novel, relatively novel thing of a seeming uh, Russian government backed troll army that the media the media has never really looked at something like that before. So its efficacy is just sort of seen as obvious um, and not something that itself has to be examined. Do you think that that might be what's going on? I think there's a lot going on, um, including what you said. So first of all, I think it's extremely important to note that the, in terms of the audience that major media outlets serve, maybe with the exception of Fox News, let's say definitely with the exception of Fox News, but the New York Times, the Washington Post, MSNBC, CNN, those media outlets are serving overwhelmingly an audience and readership that is vehemently anti-Trump. They're politically engaged people, which is why they're reading those newspapers and watching cable news instead of entertainment shows or the like. They're politically engaged and they're highly partisan. They are, at least in terms of their views of Donald Trump, who, as everyone knows, is extremely polarizing. Those who hate him really hate him. (laughs) And so there's a huge incentive for media outlets to feed their audience and readers what they want. MSNBC's ratings have exploded almost entirely due to feeding their viewers a constant stream of self, self-satisfying and kind of vindicating um, stories about Donald Trump. It's just nonstop anti-Trump in a way that Fox News first became a powerful force by doing that with Bill Clinton. And then with Barack Obama, the uh, being up the, the the opposition media is extremely lucrative. It's extremely profitable, and it's extremely beneficial. So if you write, publish a story that is extremely, you know, inflammatory, and suggests some big revelation about Russian meddling in the election or some connection to the Trump campaign, you're going to get enormous amounts of traffic. The reporter is going to get huge numbers of retweets. He's going to get, you know, or she's going to get bookings on every major cable show and TV show to talk about it, applause from fellow journalists. Whereas if you publish pushback and skepticism, um, you know, you're going to get the opposite. You're going to primarily get acrimony um, and criticism. Um, Not very many people retweeting it. Um, because of this imbalance in terms of how media consumers are seeing these issues. So I think that's one big factor. Um, I think another big factor is the fact that most media outlets and the journalists who work there do genuinely harbor a hatred for Donald Trump. Um, I think that they're generally susceptible to being very patriotic because they have a, tend to have a very close relationship with U.S. intelligence agencies and law enforcement agencies who have been the leaders in pushing this narrative. And so they are kind of going on with that. Um, and then I also think it's there's a, a, another incentive scheme, which is that it's just actually easier to go on with the flow. So, you know, if, if Robert Mueller issues a, an indictment um, or James Clapper or Jim Comey or like Sally Yates or all of the new prosecutors and CIA agents and FBI officials who are the leaders of the resistance and the heroes of the resistance proclaim something to be true. It's so much easier in the new media fast paced world to just take it and put it in a headline and write it up and publish and get praise and traffic and benefits than it is to dissect it and critically analyze it and question whether or not it's really true. And so I think all of these incentives are combining um, along with the important one that you mentioned, which is, is this is kind of new. Um, you need a lot of expertise in understanding how bots work, how algorithms function, how hacking attribution is done in order to really be able to critically evaluate a lot of these claims and tons and tons and tons of reporters writing about this stuff just like that. And uh, something we've discussed before is that for for some journalists and, and many liberal viewers and readers, it provides this shortcut both retrospectively and prospectively in the sense that it offers a explanation that doesn't involve Hillary Clinton's failings for why Trump won. And prospectively, it offers a shortcut 
uh, to getting Trump out of office short of defeating him at the ballot box? Right. I think that's totally true. Um, and I think my mom, a- my mom texted me Russia exclamation point uh, after the indictments were handed down. I didn't initially had no idea what she was talking about. <laughs> well, th- but that gets to the point I was actually just about to make. Um, and, and I don't know your mother, so it's obviously not an indictment of her. But um, I think in general, I think we underappreciate the extent to which the Trump victory was such a traumatizing event and such a disorienting event for most people. Um, in part because all of us were assured by data experts and, you know, um, predicting models and the like that the chances were overwhelmingly high that Clinton was going to win and Trump was going to lose. It also is obvious that Trump, just in terms of how he comports himself and the way he speaks and um, just his general character and demeanor and behavior are very at odds with the way the American presidency has been constructed in terms of image and the way Americans have been taught to think about their presidents. And so I think that those two factors combine to make this an extremely confusing, disorienting event that just kind of dislodged people from the certainty that they feel about how the world works and their ability to understand it. And when events like that- Which I sympathize with, I feel the same, I felt the same way, frankly. You know, <laughs> I, part of why I, I'm describing it, I think accurately, is because I I, I felt it too. I went, <laughs> I so I'm not kind of like on a mountaintop looking down at lesser beings describing their confusion. <laughs> I'm describing it in large part my own personal experience as well. Exactly. And when those kind of things happen, you know, you crave an explanation that makes sense and that lets you feel like the world is safe and understandable again. And that's what religions, you know, for centuries have most successfully exploited is the desire for a hard to understand, complicated world that lacks explanations that are digestible to to provide those. You right? know, there's a, a unified and why, why bad things happen to good people. <laughs> yeah, I mean, exactly. You, you, it needs to make sense um, so that people have a comfort that they can understand the world they're living in. I mean, we all need that. Right. Like when we wake up in the morning, we, we have certainties about what we how the world works. Like I'm going to, you know, step onto the floor and the floor is going to support me and gravity is going to be, you know, an operation. <laughs> like imagine if you woke up one day and there was no more gravity. Right. We would all be like, what the fuck is happening? We'd be extremely disoriented. We would need an explanation. Um, <laughs> and I think that's part of it is that saying, oh, what happened here is Putin caused this to happen, gives people this kind of unifying theory to understand it. Um, and then I also think the scapegoating um, factor where all as human beings tempted to blame bad things always on other people um, because we evade responsibility ourselves. That's a natural human tendency. Um, and so if you're a Democrat in particular, um, you know, being able to say, oh, the reason we lost isn't because we have fundamental flaws in our messaging or we're totally corrupt or we nominated a completely shitty, unattractive candidate that everyone hated. Um, who nonetheless reflects the core values of our terrible party. It's because Trump cheated um, and this autocratic villain um, manipulated everything. It just leaves all Democrats of responsibility and guilt. Well, one of the strangest ironies here, I think, is is Jim Comey becoming a resistance hero because I think a clear-headed, calm assessment of what sort of um, surprise interventions impacted the 2016 election would lead with one Comey having that utterly inappropriate press conference uh, smearing Hillary Clinton while announcing he wasn't charging her. And then two, totally needlessly announcing, telling Congress that he was reopening investigation. That surprise, surprise went nowhere. And everyone at the time seemed to understand that that was the both of those things were were entirely inappropriate and had a hugely negative impact. What do you make of the uh, the, the the lionization of Comey? So interesting and, and true what you said. If you go and look at what like Hillary Clinton and John Podesta and Robbie Mook and like all those people were saying in the immediate aftermath of the election about why they lost, especially Clinton, their number one villain overwhelmingly was not Putin or WikiLeaks or the New York Times. It was Jim Comey. They were 
absolutely convinced that they were on their way to winning and would have won if he had not written that letter to Congress saying that the investigation had been reopened, you know, 10 days or whatever it was prior to the election. Um, and Nate Silver did what he purported anyway to be an empirical analysis in which he essentially said that that was the key event that caused her defeat. So the official line of the Democrats was, and, and you know, in fairness to them, they did also mention Russia and WikiLeaks and, and blame them as well, but the, the emphasis was overwhelmingly on Comey. And then as, you know, Comey does not make a very good villain, um, he became the FBI director under George Bush, but then, um, I mean, he became a Justice Department official under George Bush, but then was appointed as FBI director by Barack Obama. Um, he's long been kind of lionized in Washington as this you know, like highly ethical, you know, um, FBI agent and beyond reproach in terms of his integrity. Um, and he has a and, reputation of uh, intentionally very much cultivating just that image. Uh, yeah, yeah. He's extremely skilled at doing exactly that. Um, and he's a very shrewd operator. And so I just I don't think he made an effective enough villain for the Clintons and for the Democrats, um, even though I do think the evidence is strongest. If you're looking for an actual culprit, that he played the biggest role. Um, but by contrast, Americans have been trained for decades by a steady diet of, you know, entertainment and political propaganda to view Moscow and the Kremlin and, and the Russians um, as these incredibly threatening, um, nefarious enemies. I mean, it's just embedded now into the American political consciousness. Um, Julian Assange and WikiLeaks are probably the most easily, you know, villainized people around for so many different reasons. Um, and so I just think it became more effective and more attractive and just easier to shift the emphasis away from Comey onto, you know, the KGB, as it were, and which I know doesn't exist, but lots of Democrats don't know that, um, <laughs> and, you know, like the Kremlin and all the pictures of Moscow and Red Square that just like send just like, you know, into our lizard brains, images of threatening foreigners. Um, and so that became the dominant storyline. And in something in particular, I think, in the liberal lizard brain is this totally quixotic uh, desire to believe that they can sort of out tough on Russia, out NATSEC, out law and order the right. And then all of a sudden there'll be a gotcha moment and the Republican Party will collapse when presented with this brilliant maneuver on the Democrats part. There was one of the most amoral, sociopathic, and reckless articles I literally have ever read. <laughs> I've been doing journalism, published, I think, two weeks ago in the Washington Monthly by someone whose name I don't remember. Um, I think he's a journalism professor, um, in which he explicitly said exactly that, that essentially the Democrats should just fully lean into the position that we are in a new Cold War, that the Russians are our enemies, and tie the Republicans to our enemies and tell the American public over and over and over again that the, the Republicans are traitors and are treasonous because they're on the side of our enemies instead of on the side of good patriotism. And his argument, his conclusion to that is that by tying Republicans to what the Democrats, he says, should depict as our existential grave enemy, um, Russia, in the middle of a new Cold War, by tying the, Rus the Republican Party to our enemies, he says that Democrats can convince Americans that Republicans are traitors and guilty of treason and not on the side of good patriotism the way Democrats are. And through that tactic, the Democrat Democrats can regain political dominion over Republicans. That was his argument. Um, and I think that's a fairly <laughs> common argument now among Democrats and liberals, maybe not usually said quite so explicitly, but that is the belief. Um, I think it represents the actual belief of many partisan Democrats and probably the belief um, that that's the right strategy. 
And for so many reasons, I mean, it's strategically idiotic. Um, but beyond that, it's incredibly, you know, I don't even think amoral, but immoral, given the grave dangers, thinking about the world that way, purely to gain political advantage, poses for everyone who lives on this planet. Precisely. I think one thing you're pointing to is how cynical it is, because it was only six years ago that a lot of these same people were cheering on Obama for chiding Mitt Romney by uh, who called Russia, you know, the greatest threat to the United States. And Obama responded, the 80s are now calling to ask for their foreign policy back because the Cold War has been over for 20 years. Governor Romney, I'm glad that you recognize that al Qaeda is a threat. Because a few months ago, when you were asked what's the biggest geopolitical threat facing America, you said Russia. Not al-Qaeda. You said Russia. In the 1980s are now calling to ask for their foreign policy back. Because you know, the Cold War has been over for 20 years. But, Governor, you know, when it comes to our foreign policy, you seem to want to import the foreign policies of the 1980s. Just like the social policies of the 1950s and the economic policies of the 1920s. I mean, I think this is such a key point. Um, you know, I actually debated my colleague, Jim Risen, um, who, you know, for 20 years was a national security reporter at the New York Times who won the Pulitzer Prize and now is at The Intercept. And he wrote an article entitled, Is Donald Trump a Traitor? Um, and we debated that article because I found it highly problematic and objectionable in many ways. And one of the points that I made was what I think is a really important one that you just alluded to, but it's even beyond that, which is it wasn't just in 2012. So like, if, if you're going to say that the Republican Party are traitors and committed treason because they partnered with our enemies, it means that Russia, by definition, has to be an enemy of the United States. That's what the Constitution requires in order for <laughs> treason to be demonstrated. Um, and it's just the colloquial definition of what a traitor is, is that you help our, our enemies. And the problem with that is that it wasn't just in 2012 when the leader of the Democratic Party in the President of the United States was mocking the notion that Russia is our enemy. And they like produced this film with like Madeleine Albright and a bunch of other like Democratic foreign policy luminaries saying that this is Cold War thinking to think of Russia as our enemy, that they're actually our partner. Even after everything happened in 2013, 2014, 2015, 2016, including Crimea, Obama constantly mocked the idea that Russia posed a threat to the US and was our enemy. He aggressively tried to partner with the Russians in Syria. He refused to arm anti-Russian Ukrainians on the grounds that he didn't want to provoke conflict with Putin over his neighborhood because it would undermine the ability of the US and the Russians to work together in areas that were of greater and more important interest to the US, um, such as against ISIS and terrorism and in Syria. Um, and on the Iran deal where Russia and the U.S. did work together. So how can you possibly, you know, cogently accuse your political opponents of being guilty of treason for working with a country that is an enemy of the United States when the leader of your party and the person who was president at the time was dismissing the idea that this country is our enemy and in fact was talking about them as our partner? in multiple ways. Um, that's the irony to me, is that through 2016, Obama himself fought with people in both parties who were trying to get him to be more aggressive when it came to confronting Russia on the grounds that the Russians are not our enemies and shouldn't be thought about ways. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is also brought to you by University of California Press, which is without a doubt one of the best university presses out there. One title you might like is Miller's Children, Why Giving Teenage Killers a Second Chance Matters for All of Us by James Garbarino. Miller's Children is a passionate and comprehensive look at the human consequences of the U.S. Supreme Court's decision in the case of Miller v. Alabama which outlawed mandatory life-without-parole sentences for juveniles convicted of murder. The decision to apply the law retroactively to other cases has provided hope to those convicted of murders as teenagers, people incarcerated with the expectation that they would never leave prison until their own death as incarcerated adults. Psychological expert witness James Garbarino shares his fieldwork in more than 40 resentencing cases of juveniles affected by the Miller decision. Providing a wide-ranging review of current research on human development in adolescence and early adulthood, 
He shows how studies reveal the adolescent mind's keen ability for malleability, suggesting the true potential for rehabilitation. Garbarino focuses on how and why some teenagers convicted of murder have been able to accomplish dramatic rehabilitation and transformation, emphasizing the role of education, reflection, mentoring, and spiritual development. With a deft hand, he shows us the prisoner's world that is filled first and foremost with stories of hope amid despair and moral and psychological recovery in the face of developmental insult and damage. Miller's Children, Why Giving Teenage Killers a Second Chance Matters for All of Us by James Garbarino. Out now from University of California Press. Switching gears, this isn't an exceptionally surreal moment for the politics of surveillance, which is really saying a lot given the history of surveillance politics. We have Republicans complaining about the national security state violating civil liberties and Democrats defending what conservatives like to call the deep state as the saviors of democracy. And this happened just weeks after members of both parties came together to reauthorize warrantless spying and pushed back uh, proposals for for very modest safeguards. Can can you explain for listeners who have had trouble following um, the, the twists and turns of this this debate over surveillance? Yeah, so in order to do that, I think it's important to go back to what happened in the aftermath of the Snowden reporting and the controversies it caused, particularly over domestic spying in the United States. In the... Months following the original reporting we did on the metadata program and the collection of, you know, huge amounts of data on Americans' communication activities, there was a bill proposed in the House, jointly sponsored on the one hand by Justin Amash, the libertarian Republican from Michigan, and on the other hand by John Conyers, the liberal um, Democrat from Detroit, that was designed to overhaul and seriously reform domestic spying activities in the United States. And at first, when they introduced it, nobody took it seriously um, because there has been no bills passed by the U.S. Congress or even close to being passed by the U.S. Congress since 9-11 that actually significantly reined in government powers. Every bill passed in the name of the war on terror has expanded and increased government powers in the name of terrorism. So nobody took seriously the idea that the U.S. is going to – the U.S. Congress is going to seriously rein in um, powers granted in the name of terrorism. But – because of the controversies being created in the Snowden story and also um, just the nature of the, the factions in the House, very quickly they started to attract support. And it, they got enough at first to force John Boehner to agree to let them bring it to the floor and have a House vote. And then they got enough that it made it look like it was going to pass. And the only reason – and that ended up not passing – was because the White House summoned Nancy Pelosi and said, we need you to whip votes against this bill. And she got enough Democrats in her caucus who had originally intended to vote for this reform bill of John Conyers to vote against it and make sure that it failed, protecting the ability of the NSA to spy on Americans in mass. It was Nancy Pelosi who was overwhelmingly responsible for its defeat. Um, there were lots of Republicans who joined with her. Um, she actually worked with um, Boehner, who was also against it, who was whipping votes on the Republican side. But it was Pelosi who saved the day. It barely got rejected. But at least there, you can say, OK, it's kind of hypocritical for the Democrats and especially liberals like Pelosi, who are supposed to be you know, proponents of reeling, reeling in these intelligence agencies. This has been a Democratic Party position for decades to be the one to save the NSA, but at least there she's doing the bidding of a Democratic president. It's totally normal that like politicians, as gross as it is, defend government power when their own party is in control of it and only oppose it when the other party is. So at least there she had that excuse. Fast forward four years later, and now we don't have Barack Obama running the NSA and the other executive branch agencies that have so much power. We have somebody who, according to Pelosi herself, is both an authoritarian, if not a fascist, who is somebody unprecedentedly corrupt, who will do anything to destroy his political enemies, and 
is probably a traitor or at least an agent of an enemy power, which in her mind is Russia. These are all things Democrats believe about the person who's now running these agencies. And so what happened was there was another movement in the House to again rein in the NSA um, because this bill that she helped pass in 2013 was expiring and, and there was a big attempt from liberals and libertarians to try and rein in it again. Um, and this time, um, not only do you have the Democrats like Nancy Pelosi saying, hey, the person in charge of the spying power is a fascist and an authoritarian and a liar and corrupt and an agent of an enemy power. You have Republicans who have spent the last year saying what they call the deep state now, which certainly includes the NSA and the CIA, are radically corrupt and abusing their spying powers for political ends. To go, so, after, to go after Trump and his allies. To go after Trump, to go after Trump and his allies, who the, these agencies hate. That's their view. So you have this perfect political moment where both parties have very compelling reasons to rein in these spying powers. The Democrats, because they're afraid of how Trump is gonna abuse them. The Republicans, because they think these agencies are abusing the powers for political reasons. And what happened was, again, there were enough Republicans who were opposed to the bill sponsored by Devin Nunes to simply extend the bill without any reforms um, and even increase the NSA's power to spy in certain instances in the domestic context. Um, there were, you had all these enough Republicans opposed to it that if Democrats had stayed unified against that bill, Devin Nunes' bill, it would have failed and there would have been reform. And instead what happened was Nancy Pelosi and Adam Schiff, who has spent the last year accusing Trump of being a traitor, joined with Paul Ryan and the majority of the Republican caucus and voted for Devin Nunes' bill to <laughs> block all reforms of NSA domestic spying and even increase the powers that Trump now has to spy on the American citizenry. It is fucking mind-boggling that she got away and he got away, Nancy Pelosi and Devin Nunes got, and, and, and Adam Schiff got away with literally helping the Republicans increase Donald Trump's domestic spying power program and it's equally mind-boggling that Devin Nunes and Paul Ryan and all those people who have spent the last year accusing the deep state of being corrupt did the same thing and got away with it. It's really the the height of cynicism, but the actually existing surveillance state really disappears amidst the current political debate. I mean, can you just lay out briefly what the state of actual surveillance is for people who are listening either in the U.S. or, or elsewhere, what the current um, capabilities and a, allowances are for the U.S. national security state to spy on, on ordinary people? So the capabilities technologically are literally unlimited. The NSA, you know, as Edward Snowden said in his first interview, literally has the technological power to spy on anybody's emails or telephone communications at any time. It's as easy as sitting at your desk, and if you have the email even of the President of the United States, you can type it in and access all of his emails. They have that technological ability. There are legal limitations on how they can use that technological ability when it comes to targeting Americans for spying. And this is a really important concept to understand. So when the NSA says, we need a warrant from the FISA court, in order to target you as an American citizen. So let's say they say, I wanna be able to read all the emails of Carter Page and listen to all of Carter Page's telephone calls. The NSA has to go into the FISA court and get a warrant in order to do that, convince a FISA judge that there's ample grounds for believing that Carter Page is an agent of a foreign power or a terrorist organization in order to be able to do that. Now. That process is a joke, as we all know. In its 30-year history, the FISA court has approved something like 99.8% of all uh, requests that the DOJ has made in order to spy on Americans. Um, so the oversight is purely symbolic, and it's a joke, but at least they do have to go through that process. The, the problem is that much of the spying that they do on Americans is done without warrants 
because they're claiming they're not really targeting Americans. They're claiming it's that incidental collection. Incidental, right? They're targeting foreigners. So what they'll do is instead of targeting Carter Page, they'll target people they believe in the Russian government Carter Page is talking to. And so they'll sit there and they'll listen to tons of Carter Page's calls, um, an American citizen, and they'll read Carter Page's emails without a warrant and then claim that they're allowed to do that, which under the law they are allowed to do um, because they're not targeting Carter Page. They're just listening incident. They're listening incidentally to his communications because their real targets are foreigners. And when this bill was first passed in 2008 um, called the FISA Amendments Act that allows them to do this, that authorized them to spy on Americans' communications as long as they claim the target isn't the American, they admitted during the debate congressionally over this bill that a big part of their goal was that they would be able to end up hearing what Americans are saying to foreigners without having to go through the warrant process because there were so many Americans whose calls and, and emails they wanted to spy on that they didn't have enough information to justify a warrant for. And so therefore by being freed entirely to spy, to target whatever foreigners they want, um, and then quote unquote incidentally listen to them talking to Americans, they would have a massive ability to spy on the communication of American citizens without even having to bother to go through the joke of the Pfizer court warrant process. And that is the reforms that the liberals and libertarians in both houses of Congress were so eager to, to restrict. Um, because if there's anything that's elemental to the framework of our constitution, literally it's number one on the list is the fact that the government can't spy on American citizens without, getting a warrant. That was one of the primary grievances against the British crown. Um, and it's so explicit in the constitution, yet the entire framework of mass surveillance allows the US government to do exactly that. And thanks to Adam Schiff and Nancy Pelosi joining hands with Paul Ryan um, and Devin Nunes and Dianne Feinstein joining hands with all of those Republicans in the Senate, um, the NSA can continue to do that under Donald Trump. I want to ask you, how you resist utter pessimism around the issue of the politics of surveillance, the the FISA Amendments Act, which which uh, we've been talking about, this uh, abomination that was passed by Republicans and Democrats who both ostensibly have their own very important reasons to 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 vote against it, who voted for it. It was initially passed in 2008. Is that right? Um, to to retroactively legalize Bush's illegal warrantless wiretapping program after James Risen exposed it in the New York Times, which is a longer story. But uh, uh, so the, re the, the response to the exposure of this illegal program was to retroactively legalize it. And in the Snowden case, uh, everyone listening knows that you and your team won a Pulitzer for your role in bringing Snowden's revelations to the public, but everything stayed the same. I, how do you not just fall into a, a pit of cynicism and pessimism and despair? <laughs> I mean, so I think, I think, you know, if your view of the world is that the only way changes can come are through the political and legislative process in the U.S., then I think there is no way to avoid cynicism and despair and even resignation. You know, when I first started writing about politics, I had much more naive views about how the U.S. political process worked because it was really the first time I kind of immersed myself in it and paid that level of attention to it. And I began with kind of very conventional views about how politics works. And I thought that, you know, the Democrats really did oppose George Bush's war on terror, that they weren't just pretending that. Um, that the Republicans who would like occasionally raise their voice against some of the more extreme measures like Arlen Specter and John McCain and the like would actually join with the Democrats and defeat it and all of those things that I believe. And then I just watched over and over and over and over again as things like the Military and Commissions Act got passed and like the Protect America Act got passed um, and torturers protected. And I mean, it, uh, and then of course, in the wake of the Snowden reporting watched, you know, what I just described with Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats blocking 
everything other than the most minor reforms. So you're right. If my conception of how change occurs was confined to, you know, what the U.S. Congress votes on and what Democrats and Republicans do, I, I wouldn't have a way out of despair. But I think that that's a really cramped way of looking at political change. And there actually has been some really significant changes in the wake of the Snowden reporting. It just didn't happen in the halls of the U.S. Congress. Um, True. You know, individuals radically changed their behavior about how they use the Internet. So tons of more people around the world, millions, in fact, are using encryption, whereas before they didn't. And that makes it much more difficult for government agencies to engage in mass surveillance. Um, Social media companies like Facebook and Yahoo and um, Apple and Google were freely collaborating with the NSA before the reporting because no one knew they were doing it. So it was all in secret. So there was no cost. And once we exposed it, they got really scared that the perception that they were collaborators with the NSA was going to allow, you know, German or Korean or Brazilian social media companies to successfully convince an entire generation of Internet users don't use Facebook and Google because they'll give your data to the NSA. Instead, use ours because we'll protect your privacy. Um, and so these social media companies didn't just pretend, but in many cases really did um, cut off huge amounts of what had been this collaboration with the surveillance state. There's still a lot of collaboration that goes on, but there's a lot of wedges that have been driven between those two um, as well, which is really significant. Um, and there's been diplomatic changes in terms of how governments around the world perceive the United States and, and efforts to construct internet systems that no longer depend on U.S. infrastructure that make it much harder to spy. So I think there have been a lot of changes in terms of how people think about journalism and secrecy and the U.S. role in the world as well. Um, it's just I can't point to, you know, the NSA is still up and operating and there haven't been a lot of <laughs> I can point to that the U.S. Congress is inactive. Let me uh, offer you another pessimistic take that I'd like to hear your response to, which is that I have a sense that at least in the U.S. You know, I'm not usually the person who tries to cheer people up and like <laughs> yeah. to be so, so pessimistic, but like, um, that's my role. Uh, um, it seems like in the U.S. the the exposure of mass surveillance is is quickly co-opted by a process of the very normal the, the normalization of that very mass surveillance, which I think is also part of the f us being habituated by mass commercial surveillance to the notion that we are just exposed to these watchers, whether in the public or private sphere. I think that there was definitely, there has been definitely an attempt, a concerted campaign by social media companies led by Facebook and Google to persuade people to devalue and repudiate the need for their own privacy for obvious reasons, which is that the business models of both companies depend upon people's willingness to take private data and make it publicly available um, or at least exploitable. And so the, 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 the value of, of personal privacy is directly at odds with the business interest of the, that industry and therefore, there has been a very successful campaign to convince especially younger people that privacy is essentially obsolete, like it's archaic. It's kind of this, you know, ancient relic of prior generations. And Mark Zuckerberg famously said um, that privacy is no longer a social norm. Um, Eric Schmidt, the head of Google, you know, in an interview in 2009 said very scornfully, well, if there's things that you want to hide, that's probably a good indication that you shouldn't be doing it in the first place. Um, you know, uh, so there's kind of like real theme, this anti-privacy theme that has pervaded uh, Silicon Valley. Um, and I think you're right that it has spilled over into um, views of how uh, governments spy on us. Um, there has been this acceptance of this idea that as long as you're not a bad person, as long as you're not a terrorist, there's no reason that you should read, you should mind having the government read your emails. Is there any way to instrumentally seize on Republican hypocrisy around the NSA's wiretapping of Carter Page and use that to advance uh, broader skepticism of the national security state? Or is or is this debate trapped within its politically instrumentalized 
is it trapped within its political instrumentality? Well, so part of why I've, you know I have found this whole Russia uh, focus so damaging over the last year is because I do think, and actually this is something that David Frum says as well, um, and I, I agree with him on this, is that you know he essentially has said that the Russia story has retrained an entire generation of liberals to once again be grateful for the role that the CIA and the NSA and other intelligence agency play in um, keeping Americans safe, that it has revitalized faith in and support for um, the intelligence community and the military um, agencies among liberals who for the last few decades have been taught to be skeptical of them. And so I think he's exactly right about that. Um, I think that if you look at the language of the resistance, and it's something that you referred to earlier about the attempt of Democrats or the belief on the part of Democrats that they can kind of out-patriotize and out-jingleize and, you know, depict Republicans as the traitors and Democrats as like the strong militaristic defenders of American greatness. Um, I think that is what Democrats are thinking. And so— And it uh, never works. Recall 2004, John Kerry reporting to duty. How did that work against Swift Boat Veterans for Truth? Like they can't. Yeah. It doesn't yeah. work. <laughs> right. It, like in 2004, they literally ran a decorated war hero on the one hand against a draft dodger on the other. Um, and they got killed, even though the president <laughs> was incredibly unpopular for all kinds of economic and military reasons. Um, and then, you know, in 2008 is another example as well where, you know, the Republicans ran a decorated war hero um, against, you know, the first African-American trying – someone trying to be the first African-American president in American history whose name is Barack Hussein Obama who grew up in Indonesia, who never served in the U.S. military, and Obama crushed him. Um, so I think it's an incredibly outdated way of thinking that the Democrats are doing. I also agree that it's completely ineffective. But it's also really dangerous because if you look at who the heroes – who their heroes are, um, they are. They're, 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 it's John Brennan – you know, the former head of the CIA who advocated for torture and rendition under George Bush. It's, um, you know, James Clapper, the former national intelligence director who got caught lying to the Senate and denying mass surveillance even existed before the Snowden reporting happened. Um, it's prosecutors like, you know, Sally Yates, um, who, who put people in prison her whole life, um, or at least during her career at the Justice Department. Jim Comey, the head of one of the most corrupt and destructive agencies in American history, which is the FBI. They're the, the political values that are being and, and that's the reason why, you know, they're so comfortable with people like Bill Kristol and they adore Nicole Wallace, who was George Bush's communications director and is now notably an MSNBC host, because the kind of jingoism and uber patriotism and uber nationalism and, you know, anthems to American exceptionalism that were the kind of hallmark of the Bush era are now what liberals are being trained to believe in and adopt for themselves. And there's a corresponding reverence for national security state officials and these agencies because they view them as anti-Trump. Um, and I think this is why accountability matters, because this is what happens when people aren't charged for war crimes. They commit the impunity distorts our collective memory and allows these people to be recuperated as resistance heroes. Yeah, I mean, the the liberal, the favorite figures of liberals the ones they cite the most, the ones for whom they cheer most enthusiastically, are either people who have worked inside the savage American penal state, putting people into prison, arguing for case law that is highly, highly pro-prosecutor and pro-state and anti-defendant and makes it easy to grow the pr prison population, or worse, people who are guilty of the worst abuses of the war on terror, the people who were kidnapping, um, innocent people off the streets and sending them to Egypt and Syria to be tortured, people who ran the torture camps, people who invaded Iraq. These are all the heroes of the resistance. It's a really weird resistance. Um, you know, it's like generally speaking <laughs> history, the resistance does not revere the head of the agencies of the security state. Um, that's not normally how resistance works. Resistance, The resistance does not normally advocate for the imprisonment of political opponents and journalists um, who express views that they dislike. It's a very strange resistance um, that we have. Um, but 
that's the nature of it. And I think that it is reshaping um, the actual political values of an entire generation of Democrats and even liberals in a ways that will endure long after Trump is gone. Well, speaking of the resistance's values, what's this been like for you? Have you ever been attacked? I know I, I, I know you've spoken in the past about the being kind of like a liberal hero under Bush when you were criticizing the war on terror excesses under under a Republican president and the shift to criticizing Obama and how liberals many liberals turned on you then. But have you ever experienced anything like what you've experienced as a skeptic of Russiagate? No, I don't. And, and, you know, I think that um, I haven't. And I think that the reason is what we were discussing earlier, which is I genuinely believe that there is a religious type faith in the truth of the Trump Russia narrative that MSNBC and the DNC and Vox and all of those outlets have been relentlessly feeding huge hordes of Democrats and, and liberals for more than a year now. Um, it's a it's a religious faith in this, the story itself. And then the importance of it in terms of believing it is on par with believing in and defending things that people believe on on a religious level, things that people will go to war for, that will they will kill people for, that they will die for. Um, and it's always the case that people who regard it, who are regarded as heretics or blasphemers, um, which is I genuinely believe how partisan liberals and Democrats see me um, and other skeptics of, of, of this stuff, um, you know, are, are the people who are targeted with the, the greatest degree of hatred. Um, so, yeah, I mean, look, I don't want to, um, you know, self-dramatize or self-victimize or anything like that. You know, there are journalists around the world who are enduring a lot worse than, you know, being accused every day on Twitter of being like a Kremlin agent um, and a Russian <laughs> spy and all of that. Um, but I do think it's important to note, not because of the impact on me. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of accustomed to and sort of equipped for taking positions that make a lot of people angry. I don't mind that. Um, but I do think it is worth noting um, just how central all of this has become to Democrats. Like what Democrats talk most about is not eliminating or reducing income inequality or reigning in American imperialism or um, ending capital punishment um, or protecting abortion rights or any of the things that traditionally Democrats have most focused on, what Democrats most focus on, and we did an analysis of MSNBC that proved this, and there's lots of other way, empirical ways to demonstrate it, their number one issue by far um, is Vladimir Putin and the Kremlin and his um, possible ties to Donald Trump. And that is far and away their most important issue. And so if you're an, an opponent of them on that issue, it's just natural that they're going to hate you. I don't think it's surprising. I know I'd sleep a lot better at night if Democrats were as laser focused on, say, uh, stopping the march to war with Iran and North Korea. I mean, those things are actually terrifying. There are serious menacing things that the Trump administration is doing that receive way less attention than it deserves because of how much oxygen Russia takes up, um, including the escalation of the savagery of the war on terror, the almost utter disregard for civilian lives and bombing campaigns in Iraq and Syria and the U.S.-supported Saudi assault on Yemen, um, the destruction of crucial regulations that keep drinking water clean for lots of communities and air clean and you know, just the kind of complete giveaway of, of the government to industry and the wealthy. Um, these things, you know, they, they get some attention. Some people talk about them. Some people write about them. But they're overwhelmingly drowned out by this, you know, fixation on what has clearly been the number one political story dominating the American press for at least a year now, which is Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is The Progress of This Storm, Nature and Society in a Warming World by Andreas Malm. This book is an attack on the idea that nature and society are impossible to distinguish from each other. In a world careening towards climate chaos, nature is dead. It can no longer be separated from society. 
Everything is a blur of hybrids, where humans possess no exceptional agency to set them apart from dead matter. But is it really so? In this blistering polemic and theoretical manifesto, Andreas Malm develops a counter-argument. In a warming world, nature comes roaring back, and it is more important than ever to distinguish between the natural and the social. Only with a unique agency attributed to humans can resistance become conceivable. The Progress of This Storm, Nature and Society in a Warming World by Andreas Malm, out now from Verso Books. Is there any chance that the Moscow, Moscow Hotel P-Tape is real? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, you know, um, yes, of course, there is a chance, right? Like, if you look at how Donald Trump has lived his life, it would be the opposite of surprising if he hired a bunch of prostitutes whenever he travels anywhere, including to, to Moscow. Um, and I don't really have any opinions on what he might have propensities to do with them, but very few things would surprise me given just human nature in general, but Donald Trump in particular. Um, it does seem, you know, highly unlikely that not necessarily that the tape exists, but that Vladimir Putin is holding it as a blackmail device over Trump, given all the things that Trump has done that have been contrary to Putin's agenda, whether it means, you know, bombing Assad, doing things in Syria that are at odds with the Russian goals, arming Ukrainians, building mm -hmm. up troops on the Russian border. Um, so many things, you know, that um, the Trump administration has done that completely obliterates this notion that Trump is a, a, a puppet of the Kremlin. Um, and I think you could actually make a case, Trump said this the other day, that in some instances, including really important ones, Obama was a lot more accommodating to Putin than the Trump administration has been, um, which I think speaks well of Obama, by the way. Um, but I think it also, you know, makes ridiculous this idea that Putin has a vault of videotapes and other information on Trump that allows him to dictate to Trump what he wants him to do. I feel like the, the a lot of the criticism of your position on Russia is premised on a misrepresentation of that position. What, you think so? <laughs> perhaps. What, what What is your position, just to underline that, and what has it been, and what do people tend to represent it as? It's funny, because as you'll see in this debate with Jim Risen, um, excerpts of which were published this morning, so I don't know when this podcast that we're doing now is going to be published, but by this morning I mean Tuesday or Wednesday, I don't even know what day it is, Wednesday. Um, and then the full video of it will be released tonight. That was a major part of our discussion because he, you know, echoed this common view um, that's utterly false that I began my writing about and discussions of this Russia question by affirmatively stating that the view that Russia interfered in the election was a hoax. That's what he called it. A that I said that it was a hoax, that I believed it was a hoax that I denied that it happened. And now over time, I've changed my position to essentially just kind of throw up my hands and say, I don't really know if it happened. Um, I don't really know if it happened. We just have to wait and see. And what I have said from the very beginning is exactly the same as what I've said now. And I've said it literally from the first article that I wrote about Russia and the first interviews I did on CNN, on Fox, on everywhere else, um, which is that, of course, it's possible and even plausible that Russia engaged in disinformation campaigns or did hacking with the intention of undermining or destabilizing the U.S. because this is something that the Russians and the U.S. have done to one another and to everybody else for many decades. Nobody would ever say, oh, this is, isn't something that Vladimir Putin would do. He's too ethical to do it. He's too restrained. He's too cautious. This is minor in the scope of what the Russians and the Americans do to one another, <laughs> have always done to one another. So nobody rational would ever say, oh, I don't believe this happened. My argument has been very simple and consistent, which is the lesson that I thought we learned from Iraq, that at least I learned from Iraq, um, and lots of other examples, is that as journalists and even as just citizens, we shouldn't accept inflammatory claims from the U.S. government unless accompanied by convincing evidence that those claims are true. We shouldn't accept them on faith, especially when they're being laundered anonymously through media outlets, but even when they're being issued in terms of government reports in the name of the Department of Homeland Security, that 
just doesn't have evidence to let us determine whether or not the claims are true and that we ought to have high levels of skepticism about the truth of those claims unless evidence is available for us to look at that convinces us that those claims are true. And we just haven't had that evidence when it comes to the core claim that Vladimir Putin ordered Russian government agents to hack the email inboxes of the DNC and John Podesta. Maybe the Mueller investigation will one day reveal that that's true. Maybe it will one day reveal that Donald Trump worked with the Russians in order to make that happen. But thus far, there's very little evidence to no evidence that those things are true. And therefore, I'm saying and I've always said not that it didn't happen, but that we shouldn't accept the, the, the view that we did. And you've also pointed out that there is currently no evidence of collusion between Trump and the Russians. And I think a lot of liberals might ultimately be disappointed when when Mueller does not find that and is not able to bring down Trump. I mean, I think the only way that Trump is potentially going down, and I think this is highly unlikely because he's a sitting president, is for obstruction of justice, which I think he likely did commit by firing Comey. It's very possible that what we'll end up with are convincing indictments of an obstruction of justice without any evidence of an underlying crime. Um, you know, there are lots of pe- reasons people lie to hide things other than crimes. They may hide embarrassing, um, personally embarrassing uh, facts. They may hire. They may hide things because they can be used to politically attack them. Um, but people lie all the time and cover up all the time things other than the commission of crimes. Um, so, you know, I'm open to the idea that Trump or people around him committed obstruction of justice. Um, but even if that's true, that doesn't obviously prove the underlying crime ever existed. Glenn Greenwald, thank you so much for coming back on. Yeah, I really uh, enjoyed being with you. Thanks so much. Glenn Greenwald is, amongst other things, a co-founding editor of The Intercept. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting the folly of perfecting the repressive machine instead of breaking it, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. Mostly twice, but not always. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio. And please do find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, leave us a review. Those reviews fed through the Apple Borg algorithms help introduce us to new listeners. Also, talking to your friends about the show, that also helps introduce us to new listeners. All propaganda on our behalf is greatly appreciated. Also appreciated, your financial support at patreon.com slash the dig. Even a few bucks a month is a huge help. Thank you.